Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of one of the greatest space history movies ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host. My name's Chris Henry. I'm with the EAA Aviation Museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And today we're very honored to have a very special guest with us, uh, someone who would know the real mission as well as the movie Inside and Out. Uh, Apollo 13's lunar module pilot, Fred Hayes, is with us. Uh, uh, Fred, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm happy happy to join you. Wish I could be back in Oshkosh in fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, another week, and it'll all be kicking off. We'd love to have you back here again. So anytime yeah. you guys want to come visit, you just let us know. <laughs> well, can, Jim, do you want to start with the first question? Yeah, I would. Um, what, I, what I'd really like to know is when you when was the first time that you heard that they were going to be making a movie of your mission? Do you remember when that happened? Uh, not not directly. I know Jim, Jim Lovell had written a book, uh, and uh, they signed up uh, – and to, to have it uh, write the rights to it for, for this movie, and I, I don't really know when that happened, and I don't know how many you know how long it took them to do their homework and whatever and figure out they should make it, uh, which is always you know they buy rights to a lot of things sometimes I guess and often or not often but sometimes they really don't end up making a movie of it. Uh, I guess the first time I knew was when I got a call to host. Uh, Ron Howard, uh, and uh, actually it ended up his wife and a daughter came, and uh, Tom Hanks and the uh, producer uh, at an office I had near Kennedy Space Center in Florida. I guess they were coming there for other reasons to look over the scene at Kennedy, and they wanted to talk to me uh, about making this movie because at that time they had reviewed a lot of information NASA had given them, mission reports, all the air-to-ground, etc., and they had a little booklet. They had a host of questions to ask me as we sat around the table in a conference room and had a brought-in sandwich, uh, fruit lunch, and uh, I guess they kind of wanted me to read between the lines on uh, what they had studied at that point as uh, to what they might consider using in the movie. Now, when uh, when they were when they were doing the casting and things like that, and uh, Bill Bill Paxton was eventually picked to to play your role, I understand that uh, all the that many of the characters that were in the movie got to spend time with with y'all. Uh, did you remember your first time that you met Bill? Uh, actually, I only met Bill uh, before the filming, only once. Uh, the second time, uh, uh, Ron Howard came back to uh, Kennedy Space Center, primarily with some of the, uh, the camera people that he was going to be involved. Uh, and he spent most of the day to look around Kennedy and figure out for certain scenes they had in mind uh, where to stage uh, those scenes. And uh, he, he brought along Bill, and I handed him off, and actually I just did a gold ribbon, blue ribbon tour of Kennedy Space Center with Bill and of course had to show him mainly shuttle operations that were going on to prepare the next uh, shuttles for launch and uh, mainly wanted to uh, make sure he knew that it took a lot a lot of people of many skills skills to uh, pull one of these things off because he was he was not, background wise and, and as a child he had, he was not particularly interested in the space program 
so it's you know not not as versed as as many children I do meet who become you know staunch supporters and advocates for space uh, even from their youth and study it he he had not so I spent the time mostly as call it indoctrination of, of what I could not Apollo but obviously of shuttle which was the current current program at that time. So sort of, sort of a space flight 101 for him uh, that uh, all you could pack in for 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 him. Right, exactly, yeah. And uh, we didn't talk about uh, the movie itself or he he did confide in me that he was a little worried about playing the part because he uh, he said in all the movies he had been in he had never played a person that was still alive. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the, the, it, was, it was all uh, always a fictional person or uh, someone that had passed on, uh, like shoot out at the OK Corral or whatever. And uh, I, to I told him, frankly, don't worry about it. The movie, if it was about Apollo 15, was only going to be pretty much about uh, six days and not not like the life story of Gandhi. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, sh he shouldn't really worry about that. I was just going to ask, you know, when they made the movie and you get, you know, to go sit and uh, and you saw it for the first time. How did that feel watching somebody else play you on the big screen? That had to be kind of different. Well, I tell you, first of all, the first the first showing was a private showing, staged in a old timey movie show in Houston. One of the ones that still remained had a balcony and those little side things like they have at opera houses for people to sit in on side walls. Oh yeah. And they invited they had invited all the mission controllers that could come and all the astronauts that could come that either you lived here in Houston or close by or flew in were willing to fly in. Ron Howard and Tom Hanks kind of stood up front and gave a little preamble uh, and somewhat telling some of the aspects of the some things they had to truncate or make shorter because of just limited time for uh, how long you have in showing a movie. And uh, then, you know, the movie was played. I did not think of it as just myself in the movie when I was, uh, unfortunately, what I didn't enjoy it because I kept finding what I call technical errors. And, of course, Ron had emphasized before the movie that he was not, his intent was not to make a documentary. It was to be a, a, a action film that could be uh, fully enjoyed by the average citizen who might buy a ticket and, and attend the movie. And as a result, obviously, there are some things that were exaggerated a little bit for drama and that to make it more exciting, I guess, uh, in the sense of a, a movie that the average person might want to see. Well, I'd love to ask what two, I guess it's a two-tiered question, but what is the the biggest thing you think they got right? And what do you think the, the maybe biggest mistake that they made in the movie I, you know, if I had said the biggest thing they got right was if you just take the movie as a whole, and I did see it several, a couple of more times, they, uh, the basic story of Apollo 13 is uh, people that were uh, very much in trouble, and they, you, had, you showed in this film a team, a team that worked through challenges and a myriad of uh, problems to overcome, and of course found solutions to enable us to get back home with a good Hollywood ending. So, you know, if you look at it just from that big picture sense, I thought they did it. The movie carried that theme very well. Just a miscellaneous, a few of the, uh, call it gross ones, uh, I thought in a way they uh, kind of made it seem like we worried about Jack joining the crew. Jack Swigert joined the crew at two and a half days before launch, that, that we worried, technically at least, or that Jack was not 
ready to go. It's, that was not true at all of that day and age. You could have changed. The way we trained as prime and backup, we trained virtually equally. Uh, I backed up Bill Anders on 8 and Buzz Aldrin 11, and I assure you I could have filled in the day before launch, and it wouldn't have made a difference on the mission. You could have changed out a whole crew at that time, and the mission would have gone, and with not any problem. So it wasn't that kind of thing at all. It was a, quite an emotional side of it, though, just to have worked that long with Ken through a whole previous backup mission. He was to back up with us on 11, then cycle of 13. So that was a lot of long hours and a lot of work with expectations of flying. And uh, to have that taken away that late in the game was, uh, you know, it was more of a disappointing kind of thing, not, not a technical go-can-you-fly-the-mission thing. And they gave another, the same thing Jack sort of mistreated. They had a crew argument in the film where it had me accusing Jack of throwing the switch that caused the explosion. The fact being, if I had not been putting away equipment from a TV show we had just finished, I was still in the lunar module where we did it, putting away stuff we had pulled out for that show, I would have been in the right couch position. That's my normal spot. And I would have been the one to throw the switch, not Jack. And there was just absolutely no no way to know that that throwing that switch was going to cause an electric short ahead of, ahead of the time. So that was you know added in there. But again, it was uh, I guess in a way it, I think Ron Howard uh, told me he listened to all the air to ground of the mission, every word that was spoken between us and Mission Control, and he said it sounded to him like we never had a problem. <laughs> and wow. uh, so you know he said we had to put some stuff in there to humanize you in some way. And same way, Jim Lovell hugging me. I mean, <laughs> that was just a cute little thing, but no, <laughs> that didn't happen either. <laughs> uh, but, you know, those are some of the things they, they did. But I thought that the, those two things with Jack was was flat wrong. I mean, in, in kind of the insinuation it gave anyway. Uh, you were saying that the uh, that it was different from when uh, when the news broke that that Ken couldn't go on the mission. I was wondering in this particular minute that we're looking at uh, right now, was uh, was Jim really that isolated from the rest of you? I mean, how much communication was going on when they were talking about the crew change, or was it, was it kind of dropped on you at the end? Or I, I, was, I was wondering what. what no, you... no, uh, that was a meeting uh, actually with Jim and I. And uh, Dr. Payne and Deke, as I recall, the medics weren't even there. I mean, they'd, they'd already had that said, said their piece. So we, we talked to uh, Dr. Payne, who was the administrator, and Deke Slayton. And uh, the situation was, uh, at that late in the game, they had already opened valves from the uh, propellants, particularly to the RCS system, reaction control systems. And those hypergolic uh, fuels, unlike shuttle, the seals could not have taken waiting another month. Uh, you'd have had to pull the whole vehicle back in. You'd actually had to, there was no uh, drains either, so you'd have had to cut stainless steel lines and to drain, and then worry about rewelding, which is you know been a heck of a reliability issue to do pull that off. So it's kind of like so it was kind of like fated complete. We were going to launch. Somebody was going to launch. Yeah. Uh, at that late. Uh, time. Uh, Jim argued, incidentally, that from when we were exposed with uh, the Charlie Duke from him being at the birthday party with his son, the incubation period normally of measles said that Ken wouldn't come down with it. If he did, we'd already been in lunar orbit. And Jim said, you know, what better, what more comfortable place to be when you're feeling bad but floating around in zero G. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that, that was not bought, obviously. 
uh, turns out Ken to date, I think Ken's one year old, younger than me, so Ken's probably 83, maybe 82. He's never had measles to date. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, Unreal. It, it's strange when uh, when you think about Apollo 15, Jim Irwin had, Jim Irwin had the uh, that heart situation while he was in lunar orbit, and uh, – the flight, uh, the flight surgeon said they were worried about him having, you know, what they were going to do if he actually had a, a heart attack. And they said, well, he's in zero gravity, so his, his, uh, and he was he was receiving, you know, great oxygen supply, and they were constantly monitoring his heart. So really, he being in the command module at the time, that was probably the best place to to monitor somebody with a heart condition. And uh, really, other right. than being in an ER at home, uh, that would be the best place to be. So. It's it's amazing how you know how many how many solutions came up while you're while you're en route and and not just with Apollo thirteen but on the other on the other flights that there were things that they had to deal with you know from everything from uh, Wally Shiraz uh, head cold uh, at seven and all the way through the program. Well, we we almost aborted uh, fourteen and sixteen. They almost didn't land. Both of them had uh, for a little bit showstoppers. That was on, if you remember, the solder ball and the abort switch yeah. on, uh, on 14. 14. If yeah. they had not, not worked a uh, auto, uh, manual load through the computer to virtually uh, tell the computer not to look at the switch, in essence, that's the way they worked around that. Otherwise, if they had gone into P-63, which was a landing program, it would immediately cycle them into an abort. Uh, so that was one they had to work around. And 16 uh, had a problem with the uh, backup uh, servo drives on a command module engine. As Ken was fixing to leave, drop them off, and he was fixing to leave and go back to altitude, higher altitude, when he dropped them off at lower altitude, and they held up for that. Uh, otherwise, you know, that was kind of put them in a one failure away from the uh, control of the SPS engine, which needed, obviously needed to get you home. So, but they uh, had a long discussion. I think they went around another two revolutions around the moon before they finally let them commit to go land. Uh, and fourteen almost had that that problem where the uh, probe, uh, probe and drogue didn't work. They... That's right. That's right. The probe. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right away, which would have kept them from capturing the limb. Yeah. You know, and, and since we're talking about the landing in the limb, you know, Fred, would you tell us a little bit about what your impression and, and what you thought of the lunar module? I mean, that was your that was your machine. Uh, well, I I spent a lot of time in the factory and test. Uh, Ed Mitchell and I were both there uh, preparing uh, the first limbs for a flight, particularly the one for Jim McDivitt and Apollo 9. Obviously, it's a, 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 mach, a machine that's only been one ever like it. It's a machine that operates solely in vacuum, a machine that operates in uh, totally systems and everything in the cabin uh, to, again, operate pressurized or operate in vacuum. Very high weight premium. You know, any aircraft is uh, always in design and development. There's always fighting weight, SWIP or WIP programs, weight weight improvement programs or SWIP programs. Well, LIM had about three of those to uh, try to continually uh, save weight. Uh, we had no inner, no inner walls in the thing, just netting material. So you could look at all your wiring and plumbing in the machine. It was uh, built for, 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 for even for the 5 PSI operation with oxygen. For instance, for weight, uh, the cabin fans, when we on the ground testing in the factory or at Kennedy, you had to time how long you ran them because they would, you'd burn up the motors run, trying to run them in this thick air. 
you know, 14.67 PSI on Earth. The fans were only built for 5 PSI. So it's a, that kind of thing, extraordinary. Now, handling qualities-wise, it was a pretty interesting. When it was fully loaded, the limit, at least I flew, uh, later ones were even heavier, but it was about 37,000 pounds. When it got the rover for the later missions, it got even heavier. But anyway... It had one set of control jets, 100-pound thrusters, to handle that heavy vehicle. So it was kind of like a big, heavy transport, if you'd say, in terms of handling qualities and performance. Of course, it got lighter as you went all the way down the landing with the same thrusters there. There was no adaptive control. I mean, this, that's, that's the control. That, in essence, the ailerons and rudders and whatever, if you want to look at it, kind of change area <laughs> as, you, as you're going down losing weight. Uh, gained area actually they got more responsive and then of course uh, you landed and when you came off at the ascent stage uh, similarly it was uh, heaviest it was fully fueled and uh, then then you got it just burned out to get in orbit it was like a super spiffy little fighter and in fact it was difficult not to uh, you worried about over controlling it was kind of like you'd like to head probably uh 150 pound thrusters starting out uh, by landing go to 100 pounders come off at 75-pound thrusters and then uh, cut it down maybe to 50-pound thrusters as you got empty in the ascent stage to have a similar control response. You know, but obviously it had a, uh, a rate command system, which is your primary mode if you were flying it manual, so it didn't, didn't seem that bad, except it probably wasn't as efficient as it might have been if it had been able, able to have, be more adaptive. We didn't have a big computer. We didn't have a big computer. You remember the computer hand-wired was about one-tenth of a megabyte. I said That's megabyte. <laughs> that, well, that is something else. Did, did you get to follow it down from Bethpage when, uh, when it came off the line, uh, follow it down to, uh, to the VAB? And uh, I mean, how, often, how often were you interacting with it once it got to Kennedy? Actually, it's inter- interesting. Uh, the LEM-3 uh, one I followed uh, down. That was, uh, but but ours, LEM-7, the last LEM I tested in the factory, and I, I was in all of them at one time, from LEM-1 on up, uh, I was in all of them, but LEM-7 I never was in. I never tested it in the plant. We did get in it at, at Kennedy for some of the tests, selective tests, and and we ran a full vacuum chamber test at Kennedy in the vehicle, as as we did for all those vehicles. So so you had been in it, like, say, in January or February was the last time that you were in it before you got into it in space? No, we did we did some tests, uh, rudimentary tests, uh, I think, before, just before it went out to the launch pad, too. Oh, uh, more, more The kind of test that dealt more with human uh, interaction, if you will, where the, the crew would have been a part of uh, the particular system and what they were testing, like flight control, say. But otherwise, for many of the tests, uh, we were not involved. They always had a test subject in the vehicle, uh, which was normally a Grumman. They called them consulting pilots. So any time the vehicle was powered up, there was someone in the vehicle. Wow. Uh, how late in the, uh, in the assembly was the SNAP-27 added? Was it added at the pad, or where, where, did, they, where did they drop in the, uh, the, the plutonium parts? That I couldn't tell you. I don't know. No, I was not. Obviously, we were not involved in that particular uh, part of the preparation, so I have, I have no idea. That's cool. Now, when you were one question I had is when you were up on the mission, and you know, of course, the explosion happens. You know, what was your first? How did that go down? I mean, what did what? Uh, can you walk us through that just a little bit? 
Okay. As I said, Jim Lovell and I had put on a TV show. Jim actually was getting ready to drift back up uh, to the command module, the capsule, uh, and I was still stuck with putting things away in the limb when Jack threw the switch. Uh, there was a loud bang uh, and a reverberation of that through the metal structure. Uh, you know, both vehicles are metal vehicles. Some motion you could feel slight. It wasn't like the movie, though, not exaggerated. It was slight motion, and jets were firing with 100-pound thrusters to try to hold attitude. And I drifted up then behind that to my position in the capsule on the right side, joining Jack and uh, Jim, who had just arrived, too, and looked, scanned the instrument panel, uh, and then it was quite a shock to see the main caution warning array, which is an array of red and yellow lights, warning and caution lights. So there were seven, seven of those lights lit. There was a master alarm big light and a blue computer restart light. There was the, the, just a flash to my mind was confusion. It shouldn't, normally all the failures we had uh, thought about and trained for would normally be tied, uh, any single failure would be tied to one system. These s systems were all stovepipe. That is, they were not interrelated in any way. We didn't have a big general purpose computer with the integration of all systems through it. Each system sort of stood alone. So most all the system stuff we controlled manually, not through the computer. The computer only did guidance, nav, and control. Any of the control selects, for instance, the computer didn't select. We, so we set it up for the computer to use, so to speak, even that way. So it's not no one single failure that should have lit lights and systems, different systems, three or four, that didn't relate to each other. Very quickly, though, I scanned uh, the instruments and saw that the needles and a couple of the gauges for with instrumentation that, again, was not correlated, showed the needles in the bottom of the meters. And that told me almost for certain we had lost oxygen tank two. That in itself was not life-threatening. We had tank one, I thought, because it was looked okay. So my sense then went to just a sick feeling in my stomach because I knew even with that loss of one of two tanks, that meant we wouldn't go into lunar orbit, and obviously we wouldn't land, you know, without reference in any of the mission rules. So that was my feeling that, you know, through that early, call it several minutes. Now, the, interestingly, the ground was also confused by these things in different systems, and for 18 minutes, they thought it was an instrumentation problem. That's something like maybe a card in the seaweed box, the caution warning electronics assembly had shorted or something and that was calling all those lights on and it wasn't until jim reported seeing stuff flowing away from the ship that they recognized this was for sure for real and uh you know got busy yeah got they, busier about trying to figure out what they they had uh i guess i guess they've been kind of used to that from the the apollo 12 uh mishap with uh, uh losing the uh, the signal control uh the signal conditioning equipment so i guess the right. first the first choice yeah. would be instrumentation right yeah and again because it just didn't make sense because we read them the lights i mean they knew the lights we were seeing and the same to them this this doesn't compute for the way this the way the vehicle was wired and the way the systems were functional each in their own right what had happened incidentally if you just uh, and then they solved it eventually the g-shock of the explosion had closed some gaseous and liquid valves that were normally open, had, were open, it overcame spring t tension and rocked them to close. We, did, we didn't have a, a, a visibility of that on our panel. They did with telemetry. 
of the actual valve state. So when they had us recycle with a little toggle switch to switch those valves to open again, uh, most of those lights went away. So that was the, you know, what caused that, all that added confusion. Unfortunately, two of the valves that closed immediately were reactant valves to two of the three fuel cells. So that would have killed them on off. those particular, yeah, on those, so that we lost two of our primary sources of power instantly. And those were not restartable without ground support equipment. Unlike shuttles, shuttles fuel cells you could turn on and off. Ours, once they're on, if you ever shut one down, you couldn't restart it in flight. Now, I know so that, that in, the, in the movie, they you know they sort of talk about you know the Lem being your lifeboat. And you know how did you guys feel? Like in the movie, they kind of play it off like, oh, Grumman wasn't sure. But I'd also heard that Grumman totally stood behind the lunar module saying it could do whatever you guys needed oh, it yeah. to do. Oh, well, yeah. That wasn't another exaggeration where they had a poor, poor Grumman official uh, worrying about reusing the decent engine. And, the, the, you know, and again, given the impression, no, Grumman was totally behind the machine. In fact, the chief engineer was actually in school on a scholarship, special uh, scholarship to uh, at MIT. And they uh, sent a plane, lighted plane, picked up Tom Kelly, and they flew him down to Houston to be right there. And with uh, available to coordinate anything that was needed, we actually used that decent engine three times. The, the engine we we're going to land wow. on the moon with. That's... Uh, so now Grumman did. Had, that was another thing in the movie to add a little drama there. Things might might not work. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, and I want to be respectful of your time. We really appreciate having you on, but we want to talk about what you're working on now because you're working with the Infinity Science Center. And you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff. I know there's a restoration that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing today? Okay. Well, actually, I'd, I'd retired, retired, because I'd been six years on the Astronaut Memorial Foundation on its uh, not-for-profit board down at Kennedy and was uh, not involved with the Space Mirror. If you've ever been to Kennedy, yeah. that's a national historic feature. And I was about involved with raising money for the uh, about 65,000 square foot Center for Space Education that's there. But at any rate, I'd, I'd done my six years. I got a call to uh, visit with a leading banker in South Mississippi who was actually our first chairman of our 501c3 not-for-profit board, and he told me about the plans. And it wasn't uh, just going to be a space thing with artifacts. It was going to have uh, other galleries that were really uh, one gallery. The other gallery was to tell a story of... Uh, life in the Gulf of Mexico, and, you know, more broader uh, scientific stories to tell. I thought it would be a great thing for children and supporting them and to some degree with education in a way that might be fun and entertaining to them and spark their interest and that kind of thing. Not that I expect every child to be an engineer or to be an astronaut. We're all different and have different talents we're blessed with. But at any rate, I thought it would be great for children, and that's what uh, enabled me to consider uh, climbing back out of my rocking chair and uh, joining the board, which I've been on over 12 years. Uh, and basically, well, that's what we've done. We've grown up the space gallery with probably more artifacts than we'd like, but uh, we have some uh, tutorial otherwise, media-wise. And we have a big first stage of the Saturn. In fact, it would have been the one I'd have flown on 19 had I got to go back after backing up 16. We recovered it from a shoe facility was the last one built then we we just barely completed the uh, earth gallery because then we were bolstered by uh, monies we acquired from the bp oil spill restoration funds and that allowed us to uh, complete the last three or four exhibits we had planned 
in the Earth Gallery, which tells again a story, ecology story, uh, uh, effects of hurricanes, uh, wetlands, pollution, uh, exhibits more in, in those directions. And then we have kind of a uh, science express area that's kind of a hodgepodge of, of different things. We have a nature trail. It goes 3.2 miles down toward the Pearl River to Logtown. It's in one of the four towns, I think it was, three or four towns, small towns, that NASA, well, the government then uh, closed down. So Stennis Space Center could be built and have a buffer zone. So those towns were vacated. People were asked to move under eminent domain. So that's, um, I'm still very, very involved. In fact, the only time I've gone back to Mississippi since my wife's been down uh, now a while is very short trips where I have an event that actually uh, provides funds for Infinity uh, and support. So, well, And anybody uh, that wants to, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, sir. No, that, that's, that's about the story. It's a uh, it's it's not a huge museum. It's uh, seventy five thousand square feet. Probably people will stop. It's right on. It's right on Interstate ten. If you're on Interstate ten, driving along there, and you leave, for instance, you leave Louisiana, and come into Mississippi, where the first facility you'll see on the right, you'll see the building. You'll see the big Saturn first stage, with its five engines sticking out there. And, do you still have? Do you still, uh, easy off at the next exit. Do you still have the limb out in the parking lot? I remember that when a, a, a couple of years back I drove. Yeah, the, the limb. We, yeah, the limb. It actually, it was a training uh, training article limb that we had at Kennedy Space Center. Yep. That we trained used to train in, and we plan to move it. We're going to move it uh, on a platform sort of by the where the Saturn V is, but it's currently still sitting in the Mississippi State uh, Visitor Center. And but we're going we're going to move it from there over to Infinity, which is right adjacent, and we have adjoining roads uh, to the state uh, visitor center. Well, fantastic! I'm, I, my grandkids are coming for a visit, and I've got to I've got to get out that way because I, I'm sure they would love to see it. Yeah, uh, I think that, I think they will. It, it, uh, to do a good job of seeing everything and maybe taking in the uh, 3D movie, NASA sponsors a tour of uh, Stennis. It's a bus you get on, and they take you on a 45-minute tour out to Stennis Space Center. It probably, uh, within two and a half, three hours, you probably can cover most things. Wow, very nice. Well, and anybody that wants to, to learn a little bit more about the Infinity Science Center, uh, their website is www.visitinfinity.com. So make sure you check that out. <laughs> I'm telling you, you you know Fred. I'm sure you already know the website. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, Fred, but uh, th- thank you so thank you so much for being on the show. Um, hope to have you on uh, in future episodes because we still have a, a million questions and and a lot more of this movie to, to talk about. All right. Well, I I tell you, I've been to uh, Oshkosh twice, and uh, there's never enough time. I did sneak in a little more time this last visit. So I got to cover a little more ground, but it's, you need to, like most people do, I guess, go in there and literally spend a week at the air show. <laughs> well, absolutely. And like I said, that's an open invite. Anytime you're coming back, you let me know. We're, we're, we'd love to have you. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, uh, for folks listening in uh, on our show, if you'd like to listen to previous episodes, uh, we're always available at Apollo13Minute.com. You can find us on uh, iTunes and uh, Google Play. Uh, just look for Apollo 13 Minute and, uh, and sign up and subscribe every day. We'll, we'll have a, a new episode Monday through Friday. Please join us here tomorrow when we, uh, we talk a little bit more about uh, this movie called Apollo 13. We'll see you next time on the Apollo 13 Minute.